Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Andrew Trister. Andrew is the Deputy Director for Digital Health Innovation at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Andrew, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to see you, Sam. Yeah, great to see you. I'm looking forward to digging into our conversation and learning a bit about what you're up to on the digital health innovation front. Before we do, I'd love for you to share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in this area. Absolutely. So I trained as a physician scientist. I uh, was actually a radiation oncologist for, for a while. But even before that, I had this crazy idea, going back to my undergrad days, that studying computer science, we might be able to inform some of the ways that we were going to deliver care. So I spent a lot of time in labs, like doing robotics, while also going over to physiology labs to, to impact like, hey, how is it that a cell works? And trying to be that one person that would be able to translate from one to the other. And uh, I can tell you that trying to get into medical school with an engineering background uh, back in the, the late 90s was actually quite difficult. Not too many people <laughs> saw that, that vision. And I probably was uh, maybe a little early even then, right? Because uh -huh. there weren't too many data systems and it was a little hard to, to imagine how that would all come together. And at one point in your career, you worked at Apple and uh, helped pioneer some of the work that, you know, we see now on the watch and the phone. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's absolutely right. So when I was in practice in Seattle, uh, you know, as a radiation oncologist, it's really hard. We have patients that are coming from like 25 percent of the landmass of the U.S. Uh, coming to Seattle for care. So really a, a very, you know, quaternary care center, as they call them. And then we'd lose touch with them. So we were trying to find ways that we might be able to, uh, to keep in contact with people that are coming from northern Alaska, Wyoming, uh, Montana, and found out that a lot of these folks had smartphones or at least internet connectivity and started to explore ways that that telemedicine solution could be used for our care. And that got the, uh, you know, the interest of, of this new team that was being formed within Watch at Apple to say, could we leverage some of the same infrastructure for doing remote research programs on top of uh, the, the watch and, and the phone? And so together with Apple, we built a framework called uh, Research Kit, which launched back in uh, March of 2015. So we're just coming on to the, the sixth anniversary now. And that was the beginning of a totally different odyssey. I was expecting to stay in academics and you know see patients, but that turned into a job offer to come and help to shape what uh, would become the health team. That's awesome. Yeah, you mentioned the telemedicine and you know, we talk a lot about digital health and personalized medicine and telemedicine to me is like a throwback term that I have not heard much of recently. But it does remind me that you know this is something that we've been on the path towards for a long time. And I'm curious what your kind of take on that history is and the evolution. Like in some ways, you know, it seems like we're far from the goal. I remember, I think, you know, speaking of Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, I remember Microsoft, you know, some years ago produced like this kind of digital medicine, digital health, uh, health vault. Health vault. It, it, well, there was a product, but there was also like this video that they created that was like their statement for the vision of like the future of way of the way doctors would collaborate. And, you know, we see some of that, but it, you know, it's, it seems like it's, you know, with each step, the goal is so 
massive, there's such a long way to go. You're absolutely right. And, and in fact, I, I think I remember that video. It's very true. The vision, I think people align to the idea that we can deliver better care, that we might be able to have people have access to their own information has been in, in the minds of people for many, many years. But in the reality, to your point, telemedicine and the ultimate goal of digital health, and I'll give you a little bit of how I think about those as being related but different, it does come down to this one concept of whose data is it really? And only recently, in recent history, I would say, like in the last 10 years, has there really been a shift toward giving people the control of their own data, right? So historically, the concepts of digitizing health records, of bringing electronic health records in particular into the health system in the U.S., it was a sense that the health system itself owned those records, even though it was generated about an individual, the person who was coming just to get help. And none of that data was really being used to impact the care for anyone else. So this was, uh, from an ML standpoint, like such a travesty because you had yeah. a ton of, of potential uh, sitting right there and nobody really starting to look at it in a way that was uh, uniform or that could be informative. And so this idea of telemedicine, I think, you know, many, many people feel like they can touch the health system in an easier way using telemedicine, but it was an empty experience, right? The sense that like the doctor isn't going to lay hands on me, like how are they going to know what's actually happening? And so there are a number of fields of medicine which do a lot of diagnostics through, say, talk or observation, where maybe that is very well lent to doing telemedicine visits like this, like a, over a video conference. And we saw that with COVID in particular, when people mm -hmm. didn't want to show up to the, you know, the hospital or clinic, but still had a question. But I think there's something much more deeply profound about the relationship that a person has with somebody that cares for them, with their physician or nurse. And I think very often people weren't adopting telemedicine because the solutions that were made available to date give access to a doctor, but not give access to my doctor. And I think that that was a really, really difficult thing for many of the technology companies to really think through. And so, yes, in an emergency, I'll reach for whoever can help me. Right. But if it's simply to help me manage a chronic illness or to, you know, to see my kid uh, during a, a normal child visit, you want to have that longitudinal relationship because these are intimate things about me that I, I trust somebody. And building that trust over time, I think, is critical to the doctor patient relationship. And so here is an example where technology is injected into the normal human interaction that we, we have had for millennia with, uh, with doctors and, and patients didn't really speak to that like base component of trust. And where I think this can go is uh, first, you know, transforming that, that video conferencing thing into something that allows a person to actually equivalent of lay hands, right? Can we put sensors in the home? Can we start to make measurements and better inform the decision and do so in a way that is longitudinal? We've already started to see companies that are offering tools like that but the end state, the true digital health uh, revolution that I think is, is coming now, really is best described by what the Institute of Medicine talked about just about five years ago. This idea that we can have a health system that is learning on every single person that touches it and is proactive, preventive, and predictive. And each of these elements require data systems that have uniformity of data and also an ML system that sits on top of those 
that give you a contextual view into how it is that a practitioner might want to deliver care uh, for that individual. There's a concern among practitioners, of course, that this like removes the autonomy and the practice of medicine uh, becomes simply a, I follow the instructions of a robot. But in reality, there is no way that any one human can possibly calculate all of the potential risks and benefits uh, for an individual because they just don't have the full experience that a, a, an ML could if they had views like we think are going to become available longitudinal and ubiquitous over time for everyone. Mm -hmm. Going back to research kit, was that primarily an exercise in aggregating the, the data or was there a significant ML component to that? Yeah, so the idea with ResearchKit was simply a question uh, up front of, uh, you know, common conditions or those that might be able to be measured. Could we build a system on top of first on iPhone that would allow an individual to generate data on themselves that could be informative, either as, as endpoints specifically for, say, pharmaceutical trials or for clinical endpoints, meaning that a clinician could look at those data and say, we should titrate a drug or start something new. And so in the initial tranche of studies, when ResearchKit was launched, we chose diseases that definitely had a component that could be measured with the sensors on a phone. So as an example, we did a study in Parkinson's disease. And the idea there was that a person could speak into the microphone, could tap on the screen, could walk with the phone in their pocket. And each of these things were related to the way that Parkinson's was affecting their lives. Parkinson's is a motor neuron disease that affects the, the way that a, a person might move. And so as a consequence, we were able to evaluate some of the movement changes that they had and how the drugs that they were on were improving that movement in a quantified way, in a way that we were never able to do before. Similarly, we were looking at other types of conditions like cardiovascular diseases or uh, diabetes, where often we think about the ability of a person to move or exercise could be part of their medical plan and ways to motivate them to do so were part of the research kit idea. So in the beginning, it really was the data aggregation, and then ultimately was building entirely new statistical frameworks, particularly on the Parkinson's patients, where we were able to look at counterfactuals to look specifically at an individual. So unlike uh, many of the classifiers that we have, even in ML today, where we think about you know, one class versus another, here, we were able to look at a single person's temporal changes and look at anomalies. And in healthcare, anomaly detection was really never applied because we never had the data. It, was, it, it had to be really frequent and quite dense. But research kit, these first research kit studies allowed us a totally different view into the way that these diseases were fluctuating people's abilities. And with that measurement, we were able to then uh, start to say that a single person had, had almost like a signature based on like this drug when they take it seems to affect them differently than another person. So we get down to truly personalized approaches to understanding the, the experience that a person had with their disease. Mm -hmm. When you speak about this kind of personalized approaches, are we anywhere near doing that at scale or are, are we there or is it, you know, in uh, I, I, the image that I have in, in my head is that you know, most of treatment is kind of not really personalized. And, you know, every once in a while, someone will get into some kind of trial. You know, we're still at this very experimental one-off stage as opposed to when we were talking about kind of 
where we thought we would be today as a result of, you know, the human genome project and all these things where, you know, every medical decision would be based on all this data, you know, is, are we further along than I think, or is it still very early? No, the reality is that a lot of this does remain uh, very much in the research frame, and we haven't yet seen the impact in clinics uh, the way that we would like. Mm -hmm. I do think that there is a sea change, though, that's being undertaken at the moment, where increasingly digitizing the experience of even seeing a physician. So this idea that there's an adoption of even this most rudimentary telemedicine allows a totally different kind of data stream to go into the health Mm -hmm. system. And so that is one of the very first signs that we'll be able to move in this direction. Of course, it doesn't solve the whole problem, but yeah. we, we, we are moving more toward having uh, these very, very interesting machine learning approaches to medical problems that go beyond diagnostics, right? The, the approaches now in, in things like radiology, they don't necessarily touch the patient, but mm-hmm. as all generating so much more data than we can even imagine this whole concept of digital exhaust and our footprints why not try to harness it for some viewpoint as to like am i well am i sick like are things changing should i do something about it yeah and I, I think that we'll have a health system ready to take that kind of data and that information in the coming years yeah and and don't get me wrong i, I feel like i'm sounding like a cynic here and i'm not really i'm mostly trying to probe for areas where we're further along than I thought. And because I think the, you know, the opportunity that we're talking about here of harnessing all the the data of these interactions is, you know, potentially huge. And I'm interested in hearing maybe, uh, you know, we can kind of transition to talking about how you're using some of this data and ML, you know, at the Gates Foundation and see where you are with that. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, one of one of the interesting things about uh, what we've talked about to date is that the incentives for data sharing and really aggregating these data are very perverse right now. So there's mm-hmm. a, a lot of effort to silo the data within health systems. Part of that is, of course, regulatory, right? So we, we have rules like HIPAA that supposed mm-hmm. to protect data. But there's also... A recognition among those groups that have uh, a lot of this data, especially longitudinal data on patients, that there may be something of value when applied uh, with machine learning tools. And that is uh, one of the areas where we're quite interested in trying to switch that paradigm in at, from the Gates Foundation. So, you know, as a philanthropic organization, there are a number of different areas of focus for the Gates Foundation, but where uh, the, the strategy that I lead is largely on bringing forward a community-based care delivery system in the global south. So the majority of our work is done in sub-Saharan Africa and in uh, South Asia, where there already exists a cadre of people, be they volunteers or publicly paid for uh, community health workers who are living in villages and towns and make up About 85% of the care that is delivered at the primary level, so when a person has a a question about themselves or their loved one, they reach out to these individuals on the public sector. And on the private sector, these could be thought of as pharmacists or druggists who are right there, right? Very, very nearby. And this, of course, it relates again to human behavior. It's not that I'm going to necessarily want to go, you know, a full day's travel to the local hospital or the local clinic if I can get an answer to, you know, does my kid's fever need treatment, 
right there nearby. We don't really have an analog here. Maybe the, the local pharmacy is the closest for us, right? Like if you could walk into a CVS or Walgreens and get an answer to your question quickly, that's about the equivalent. Mm-hmm. But the trouble that we have is that these health workers don't have a uniform health record. They don't have a lot of training either. Many of them have maybe a couple of months of training, right? They're not nurses or or doctors. And yet they are uh, really forming this very first bit of the safety net for, uh, for care delivery. So many of them do have smartphones though. And so we've recognized this opportunity is, could we build a more uniform health system using data first. So seeing how it is that we collect the information from people, so the subjective information that we collect, symptoms, history, et cetera. And then also leverage the same sensors that we're talking about in ResearchKit to make measurements of the the same beneficiaries in the field and make sure that those are objective. So So rather than relying upon a physical exam per se, Instead, we say that the the tool of choice, rather than reaching for a stethoscope, maybe you reach for your smartphone. And so how can the smartphone augment the types of answers that these health workers are able to provide, you know, when somebody asks them for help? And uh, and that's the, that's, that is the core of the strategy. What we've learned, of course, is that in the last year of uh, focusing almost exclusively on the COVID response is that... All of the fissures that we had seen in in the way that the care is delivered, not just in the global south, but also in the U.S., Mm -hmm. have just broken completely open. So these large chasms in access, the complete inequity that exists today in ways that that people can get help when they want it. Mm -hmm. Digital tools can play a very, very important role in closing some of those gaps if we make sure that they're ubiquitous and available. And that is a huge if, and that is, you know, a lot of work, but that is the core of what we're looking to do. So again, starting with the data, just as we had done with the HRs, and then trying to build some more objective measurements and guidance for these health workers is the core of what we're we're looking to do everywhere now, not just in the global south. Hmm. And where are you with uh, this initiative? Are you kind of building out the infrastructure for this? Do you have projects that are, you know, in the hands of clinicians um, and and making a difference? Yeah, so we we have a couple of areas where we had focused on prior. So maybe the best example of this is a disease like malaria. Mm -hmm. Malaria is a condition that is, uh, you know, infectious disease that is transmitted by mosquitoes. And mosquitoes uh, live in, uh, or reborn, I should say, in stagnant uh, pools of water. So the idea is that in most countries that have con- that are considered to be endemic with malaria, there actually is, in fact, a seasonality to when it is that you would see malaria. So with the rainy season come mosquitoes, and therefore you'd see more malaria. And in the dry season, fewer cases of malaria is what one would expect. Yeah. And so that idea drives us because what we see instead at the reporting at the level of countries or at the WHO is that a number of countries report a constant 80% positive rate for malaria, like year round, despite whatever the, the rainfall might have been or where it is that people are doing the test. And we think that there are a number of reasons for this. On one hand, malaria can be a, a, a true killer, right? especially in young children with a fever in places where there is malaria, there, there is a potential that that child uh, may have a fatal illness. And so there's already an incentive among the health workers 
to go and uh, and provide an anti-malarial regardless of what a test might show. And among others, it might be simply that they may not be able to read the test appropriately and, and therefore they just give the drug and they report it positive. And so here was an opportunity where we said the community health workers are providing a very core service to avoid a really bad outcome, right? So to save children from dying of malaria. And yet maybe we could provide them better tools in their hands to help guide them as to when they should do the test, how they should do the test, and how to interpret it for the next best action. Mm-hmm. And we've had a number of pilots now in Nigeria and in Kenya that use smartphone applications that include an entire Bayesian framework around, you know, what is the current rainfall? Are there other malaria tests uh, that are positive in the area so that we have some sense of, you know, that there's a pretest probability that is increased because of uh, incident malaria? And then the actual uh, digital controls within the app itself that help to walk the health worker through the steps of how to prick the finger to get a drop of blood, how to put that onto the malaria test. These tests are strips of paper that have one line or two lines, right? Mm -hmm. Many people here would be familiar with these from, say, maybe a pregnancy test. Mm -hmm. So it's exactly that same form factor. 400 million of those tests are done in Africa every year and then thrown out. And so we see an opportunity where by virtue of having the smartphone alongside that test and taking a photograph at the end of the test at the right moment, that we can both capture this as a record, but also build a computer vision algorithm to interpret the result so that we can reduce the variability in the interpretation. And by digitizing that test, then we can have all sorts of downstream impact in terms of whether we incentivize different kinds of action. And so the next steps that we're just now beginning to do in Kenya are to find ways to remunerate uh, health workers if they do the test, and then what they do afterwards is recorded appropriately. And that's been a very, very exciting piece for us. These are, these are all, of course, pilots and just a few hundred health workers. It hasn't gone to, to scale yet. But we do think that from these earliest data that we'll have a system that can really make an impact uh, at scale. Mm-hmm. The Bayesian framework that you referenced, is this a learn model of some sort or a kind of point-in-time application of probability to try to determine what's happening with the test? Yeah, so so there was a bit of a cold start problem with this. So we did begin with a a known probability and some weighted trees. And then the idea is that we would be able to iterate over time and then it would become a learned model. And and so we're just now beginning to turn that crank. Mm -hmm. And the computer vision aspect of this is this is the Human, you're finding that humans are having a problem determining accurately the results of the one line versus two. It's it's amazing to, to think about this, but you know, in, in the entire process of doing a test, there are a number of areas where humans uh, actually introduce a lot of variability. Mm-hmm. On one end, it is the the order of steps, so that's actually quite quite simple because that's just algorithmic. And if you if you put the checklist and you do it in order, we can reduce that variability tremendously, and we've shown that already. Mm-hmm just by observation. So, you know, put the drop of blood, put the buffer, wait 15 minutes, et cetera. These are the kinds of things that that we can we, we can really, and that does improve the accuracy, of course, of the read, because if the thing mm-hmm. is done incorrectly, then what, what really have you done with the yeah. result? With the computer vision piece, this is one of these areas where there's like a fascinating element where... Most of these lines that you see on those types of, these are lateral flow assays or rapid diagnostic tests. 
On these rapid diagnostic tests, there's a control line, meaning like you actually put a buffer on the paper, and then there's the read line or the test line. Mm-hmm. And typically the control lines are very, very dark, right? So that you can interpret that very easily. But sometimes you have very, very faint uh, lines on the test line. Mm-hmm. Those would be positive because of the way that these uh, tests work. Mm-hmm. But people would look at them and actually make a comparison. It's a very typical kind of neuropsychiatric thing where you're like, oh, yeah. but it's not nearly as dark. It must be negative. Right. But in, in reality, it's actually po- that would be a positive test. So that's a, a lot of the failure of, to read positives is looking at these negatives in that way. We've also seen that sometimes these are tests that have more than just one um, one malarial strain, right? So there's uh, falciparum and vivax. These are two different kinds of malaria. Mm-hmm. And, and so some of these tests actually do both, PF and PV. And that becomes more complex because now you have three lines. And some of the tests are three positives, some are two, but you maybe different lines are positive compared to the control. So we've seen that as another error. So among the the UX design components that we've uh, looked at are things like don't interpret the test at all. Like take away that cognitive burden. Just tell us which picture does this one match to. Mm -hmm. And we're able to put pictures even with very faint lines. And that improves the accuracy as well. But where we have seen the greatest improvement, of course, is using a deep learning framework where we can put all sorts of uh, both real world and contrived samples, right? So this is uh, contrived, meaning like we know exactly the amount of malaria we're putting on these tests. Yeah. So we know when they are positive or negative and, and basically train the network to, to see these under all sorts of lighting conditions and different angles. And so these are quite robust algorithms at this point based upon, uh, you know, some actually th- these were using TensorFlow Lite. I mean, this is like off the shelf. It was just a matter of, of collecting enough data and labeling it appropriately. But they work much, much better than human eyes in, in many cases. Mm. And so what are the the challenges to scaling this in, in the actual communities? Uh, I'm imagining awareness and communication, education, you know, these all rank pretty highly. Is it that kind of thing as opposed to technical or are there technical challenges that remain as well? There are a few technical challenges, not too many though. So one of the the first ones that we had to deal with is that many of these community applications are in places that don't necessarily have robust connectivity. So we, we can't assume that there's going to be a, you know, a 3G connection as an example. So ensuring that these models can run on the edge and on devices that are quite modest uh, by by U.S. standards was was one of the the key. Now, fortunately, these models are very compressible and can run... uh, The the model that we use is a Samsung Galaxy J7, right, which is a a device that uh, would be the equivalent of something that was sold here maybe six or seven years ago. So it doesn't have a ton of compute, right? This isn't like the, the iPhone 12. And yet we need to ensure that those models can run appropriately and also still when there is connectivity be updated so that, of course, like as we gather more data, we can uh, have continuous improvement. So that's on the technical side, uh, one of the pieces that we've been doing and ensuring that there can be harnesses that work on, on these Android devices appropriately. But the majority of the challenge at the moment to scale has absolutely been more of a, a will 
And it comes down to the fact that the end users, right, these health workers don't really have a ton of agency in terms of uh, choosing what tools to use. It's not like we have like, here's the community health worker app store that they should go and, and download whatever app they want to make their work better. It really is that these things are sanctioned and procured by governments. And to demonstrate value to the decision makers has been a, a very long process and something that we'll be continuing to do. Because though there is alignment along the lines of like, we want to improve healthcare delivery because there are better outcomes for people. There are also questions about how to spend a very modest budget and whether this is the thing that will really make an impact, right? If you, if you only spend say, um, you know, a hundred or $200 per head, you know, per, per citizen per year on healthcare, like what portion of that should be going toward building a, a you know, this sort of digital infrastructure. And so these are the, the realities on the ground uh, for us of showing impact while also demonstrating uh, potential value for the procurers. Mm -hmm. And is the procurement challenge, does that arise because you're trying to sell them the app or because there's an ongoing charge for using the app or sounds, you know, as you described it, it sounds, you know, fairly simple. You've already done the heavy lifting of the data collection. You're a philanthropic organization that gives, you know, many millions of, of dollars to these communities. You know, wh what's the barrier there? Uh, you know, it's something I, I don't know much about global health. So I, I'm, I'm learning from my colleagues and I'm, I have my own theses on this, but I think that there are a number of things. First, we want to ensure like the work that we are doing and the money that we spend from our grant dollars from the foundation standpoint are at least from our strategy, is meant to be catalytic. Like we bring forward something that we want in the future state of care delivery and not necessarily that we will uh, be the ones paying for, you know, purchasing of these tools. And so most of the groups that are working uh, with us as grantees or that have already made an impact by building uh, these digital health tools for low and middle income countries they do so with the expectation that there is at least, uh, you know, some part of an annual budget that goes toward uh, that procurement. And I think that this is one of the realities that we face in, uh, in general in the world where markets are, are made and, you know, people will, will fill them with, with solutions. Our hope is that what we do is demonstrate the absolute utility of these tools at a modest enough cost. And in fact, we, we have subsidized sufficiently, uh, I think, the generation of these models so that they should be adopted by anyone, right? Mm -hmm. Because the cost is not really in the model itself. Like that, 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 to your point, like we've paid for that. The cost is in any of the data infrastructure, ensuring that people have the smartphones, that there's an educational component for the health workers to use them. And we've, we've been trying to drive that down also by making the UX as simple as possible, not needing a lot of bespoke engineering work. You know, th these are the, the, the main principles that we have brought forward. But at the end of the day, even if it isn't a procurement problem, like from a monetary standpoint, it's still something that has to be sanctioned by governments to be used by on the public sector. And to that end, this is actually where we see a lot of uptake in the private sector as being really quite interesting and, and really critical to, to demonstrate this type of value. Because in that space, just as you can imagine, any entrepreneurial person, whether they run one shop, you know, the, the family run drug shop, or it's a conglomerate that has hundreds, they're going to want to see something that is differentiating for them that provides them access to better market 
you know, to stand out in the market basically for their customers. And it turns out, not surprisingly, that digital and being able to socialize that they have a digitally connected uh, tool has been one of those differentiating factors as the consumer themselves have become more you know, accustomed to seeing digital tools in, in their own lives across the board. And so that that is going to be one area where we do think there's going to be a lot more uptake mm-hmm. in the coming year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, along those lines, it makes me wonder if there's part of the the way you make an impact in those communities is to make the data and the models, you know, openly available and work to build capacity to harness them in the communities themselves, as opposed to kind of coming in with an external solution. Is that something that you you think about at all? Totally. Yeah, I love it. I'm glad you went there. So all of the images that went into these models that we're talking about for malaria and that incidentally are being extended for HIV self-testing as well as for COVID testing, Mm because there are a number of COVID antigen tests that are in the same format. All of those data are to be made public. That is part of the grant funding and the way that we, um, we anticipate things to work forward. We have been exploring ways to support the nascent machine learning communities in sub-Saharan Africa in particular, and have been really, really excited to see uh, one of our grantees actually just hired an intern who is a, a, I think he's a junior uh, in Nigeria. He goes to the university in Lagos, but he competes uh, routinely on Kaggle competitions and on Zindi competitions. Uh, Zindi is a a group I hadn't even heard of uh, prior to our grantee telling me about it. But he was winning, you know, second and third place prizes alone as a junior on these uh, really robust ML competitions. And so the quality of the ML community is increasing by access to these data, by having some opportunity to compute. But there is still really basic infrastructural problems because it turns out that, that this intern couldn't even have Internet connectivity where he lives, right, in, in one of the dorms. And so uh, part of the grant uh, that we have is actually to help him find a co-working space where he can safely go, have internet, and none of the compute is happening on his uh, local laptop. But even trying to get him, you know, say a MacBook was a difficult endeavor for our grantee. And so we're we're starting to learn some of the basic infrastructural problems that, that we face when we think about this. But it's not that these things can't be overcome. Of course, they can be. But I totally agree. I think the data are going to be one thing and then finding compute resources and availability of cloud compute in particular, we're we're quite keen to have because then it's a question of, do you have an internet connection anywhere in the world where you can kick off these jobs and start to really crank out some models? You mentioned HIV and COVID. Are are there other areas where you're kind of equally far along in in having impacts in communities? Less less so uh, than malaria. Malaria is uh, the furthest along, and certainly we see these, at least with respect to the diagnostics. We have been quite interested in finding um, work in tuberculosis, although that's a little bit different. That one, rather than community-based, has been a little bit more facility-based, but it comes down to the fact that tuberculosis remains a very common condition in parts of the world. And despite the fact that we find quite a large number, say a million cases a year in India, there's an estimate that there's another million missing cases. Hmm. And so there's a question about how do you do uh, not just outreach, but improvement in the diagnostics uh, for tuberculosis. 
And, and so we've been looking at ways that AI tools in the hands of radiologists or maybe not even radiologists, but, you know, standard primary care docs that might have access to a chest X-ray could be used to augment the diagnostic cascade, which includes a chest X-ray, at least in India, and then eventually a molecular test. And, and then there's another question, which is that for people who are diagnosed with tuberculosis, the drug regimen to date usually entails about nine months of therapy. And the therapies themselves have side effects, and it's a, it's a daily dose. Mm-hmm. And, and so keeping people adherent to that can be really tough. I mean, to give you an idea, it's hard to get people to take even 10 days of antibiotics in the U.S. Like you start feeling better in two or three days, and you're like, well, should I really take the rest of the pills? And so here you go. It's the same thing with tuberculosis. You might feel really bad. To wear a mask. Yeah, precisely right. So, <laughs> exactly, and and so this is one of these things where we have been watching, and again in India, there's there's a lot of effort that goes to how to um, to do that behavior change and, and and build that habit for people who are undergoing treatment for tuberculosis without forcing them to come into a clinic every day to get their dose or to send a, a health worker to watch them, you know, swallow a pill, and some of those things are related to ML and gamification, right? So it's, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's almost like, uh, can you personally predict a churn for an individual based upon all the data you had to date and then do something proactive to help to reduce the, the churn if they were to stop taking the drug, as an example? Yeah, I think one of the, the questions that comes up for me in chatting with you about this is that I think you know, we're seeing it in your example with malaria that, you know, there's huge promise with machine learning and actually the technical solutions are relatively simple. It's not some gigantic transformer model that's, you know, cutting edge out of a research paper. You said it was off the shelf TF light, but there's all this other stuff. Like, you know, if you reflect on your time at the foundation, what, would you offer folks that are interested in supporting, you know, communities like this with technology, but really don't have any idea of all the, all that stuff? What, what should we be thinking about that part of the challenge? Yeah, I, I think that in general, I would say that there's a, there's a really nice surface area of, in, of overlap with health, health data, ML. And, but at the end of the day, it really does come back to that in some rudimentary form, that online to offline transition, that Mm -hmm. ability to have a person take a different action. And so thinking about who is it that you're trying to affect? Are you bringing forward an action for an individual on their own behalf? Are you trying to get a a person like a health worker to do something different uh, to assist a beneficiary? That end state and the ability to build models that have that in mind, like what is that effector? I think is going to be the critical piece. So people who are interested in working on this, I would say, try to to find, uh, you know, certainly community of other people like-minded and then hear from those people on the ground, like what are the problems that they're seeing at the moment and how is it that they're approaching them on a human level so that ideally the, the work that goes into those models can be dropped in as quickly as possible and can have the effect that you would want. Doing this uh, in somewhat of a, you know, in a bubble can be a little bit dangerous uh, because we, we may end up having these edge effects, uh, particularly on the human behavior side. And that, that has been a, a long and hard lesson across all of these different projects for us. Mm. 
Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. In a lot of ways, it's not all that unlike uh, building or trying to bring machine learning to market via a startup, you know, as a commercial endeavor, it's, you know, this customer discovery process and understanding the human dynamics. And you've got this uh, different layer of, you know, grants and funders and all that kind of stuff that you have to think about that's a little bit different than getting a PO through some big enterprise, but a lot of the challenges are similar. Yeah, totally agree. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for taking the time to share a bit about what you're up to. Very cool stuff and appreciate that you're out there uh, helping do it. No, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.